listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. There's an email exchange with a very old friend of mine who uh, he and I have just shared a tremendous amount over our lifespan. Uh, gone to school together since we were very young. Went to college together. We were pledged brothers in the same fraternity together. Yeah, it's one of those one of those connections that you you share with somebody. You just it's you know. Uh, like a sibling, and uh, he's been doing some remarkable spiritual work. Uh, and he was talking, talking to me in this exchange that we had about anger. He said, "There seems to be so much space that's opening up in my life as I continue in this this practice. The thing that's so amazing is how." Anger can arise. Here, I think I'm past it, you know, and all of a sudden, whammo, here comes this, you know, intensity. Um, and then in the very next sentence, he said, but it sure goes by quickly now. And I think at some level, that's a, a rather marvelous thing for each of us to kind of consider as we're going on this path. One of the things that meditation does not do, one of the things that enlightenment will not offer, is total and utter peace all the time. Except that there is this massive recognition of the peace that's underneath all fluctuations of emotional uh, life. In other words, when we assume that enlightenment will just put us in a bliss state, or that awakening will just put us in a bliss state, where we never have to worry about anything, everything is just peachy keen, no problems, whatever, that's actually ego's way of turning enlightenment into something that it's not. There's a great line that says, uh, uh, and I forgive, I, I, I cannot remember the uh, the one who wrote the uh, wrote the book titled uh, "Enlightenment is not what you think," which is so profound because it's not. Enlightenment is way beyond thought. And this is so difficult for people as they start a spiritual practice or whatever. They're like, uh, this, this goes back to one of those things. What the heck is he talking about type deal? You know, think of it in, in these terms. Um, my friend brought up his, his anger. He says, this anger kind of keeps coming up. Well, where does anger come from? What are the roots of anger? The roots of anger are in all cases, in all cases, Fear of loss. Anger arises 
in our experience, whenever there is a fear sensation about loss, that we will lose something, that someone, something will be taken from us. Fear is something that egos don't like showing, but they have no problem showing anger. Consider that. So, as we, we begin to study this experience, as we begin to start looking at what the mind is doing, looking at the activity that the ego is performing on this stage of mind, as we begin seeing what's going on there, as we begin to create space between our experience and what is observing the experience, we get this really eerie sense that there is an awareness that never shifts. It doesn't move. And the minute we can kind of pull back into that awareness, instead of being trapped by or caught by the subject of that awareness, suddenly there is this amazing freedom. Let me try to simplify this real, real quickly for you. Consider your 16th birthday. Recall when you were 16 years old at some, at some point. For me, I, I, I do not remember the birthday. Uh, I, oh, actually I do. I got hit in the head with a water polo ball really hard. I remember that. And so like my face was all swollen. There, there's a picture of me kind of smiling like this. With, I kind of look like I had Bell's palsy or something. It's just a funny, funny photograph. I remember that vividly. But what I really remember was getting my license. Suddenly, I could drive this ancient gas-guzzling Volvo, and I was on top of the world. Okay? That, my, my experience, my ego at 16, my mind at 16, was totally different from 25. Consider what life was like at 25 for you, in your mid-20s. Were you the same person you were at 16? Probably not. Go the other direction. Let's go all the way down to five years old. Were you the same person at five years old? There are huge shifts that occur throughout our life. I look back as a 45-year-old at what I was doing 20 years ago, and it's like, oh, you know, what was I thinking? Right? But the awareness of a five-year-old being five, the awareness of a 16-year-old, the awareness of someone 25, of 45, that awareness has never shifted. The context may have shifted, the meaning may have shifted, but the awareness, that bare, naked awareness has never moved. It is still, it is indeed beyond the evolving mind. It is prior to it. It is after it. It is the space that surrounds the tiny little small self that is always making noise. I'm pushing a little hard because 
I'm thinking that you're ready. <laughs> you're ready for a little, little goose tonight, you know, right in the ribs. Okay. Um, one of the things that really can help one's practice move along is when you're in meditation, it's just being aware, just being aware of what's going on, of what's coming up. That's really all you have to do. And as we practice that more and more and more, as it becomes more and more familiar ground, okay, suddenly that awareness that has never moved, never changed, never shifted in shape because it's shapeless and formless, that awareness itself begins to kind of infuse our day-to-day. And this is what gets us ready for recontextualizing our life. This is what gets us ready for, you know, the amazing event of Satori, if we're lucky enough to have it. This is what gets us ready for insight. We begin to settle down. And instead of grasping and rejecting, we begin to open totally to what is. And in that opening, in that opening, we begin to find our true selves. What's more, we begin to find the truth beyond name and form, beyond name and form, a truth beyond name and form that is shared by all beings, that is shared by all things in the universe. We recognize that there's nothing to fear. Nothing can be lost from that space. And if there's nothing that can be lost from that space and there's nothing to fear, what does this do to anger? It quite simply eradicates it. We begin to laugh at it. Not in a mocking way, but we just recognize, she's, now there's a waste of energy. So tonight, if you can just pay attention to your awareness, see where it takes you. Just pay attention to your awareness. Just be that attention. When you find that the mind takes you someplace, just recognize it. Oh, mind is trying to take me someplace. And in that recognition, we begin to uncover once again that witnessing awareness that frees us from all things. At some, at, at some, at some point, uh, we recognize that we're stuck, that we can't go any further, that something seems to be in the way, that we know, for instance, that, uh, you know, stillness, I'm supposed to do this, uh, you know, meditation, I know it's supposed to be good for me, but this is frustrating, I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere, or we may have been doing this for quite some time, and we've had some rather significant tastes of the infinite and we're wondering where the hell the flavor went because it was here for a while and now it's gone. Um, that can really get confusing for people when they're on you know, a serious spiritual path. 
And I'll tell you the reason why it happens, although it's probably not very surprising, is that experience in general is temporary. There's no experience that you can have that will hold forever. Best example would be if you're in relationship right now. Your relationship evolves and changes over time. If you're in love with somebody, the euphoric drunkenness that we felt at the beginning of the relationship always morphs into something slightly different or maybe radically different, depending. You may have been with the person for a long time or maybe a very short time. But you notice that there is a shift that kind of occurs, that we are no longer in that experiential bliss that maybe we had in the beginning. If we give it a great deal of our attention, we start recognizing that the bliss has shifted. That perhaps instead of having a wildly passionate uh, relationship, that things may have actually sunk a little deeper where the water is a little more still. We might be in a space, indeed, where our relationship is like the bottom of the ocean. Steady, stable, unencumbered by uh, life's hurricanes. It's just there. Now, if we can bring awareness to that, no matter what, at what level of the ocean we might be, where, you know, wherever we might be. Maybe we're in, you know, somewhere in the middle, maybe we're very deep, maybe it's right on the surface. Wherever we are in that experience, if we can bring awareness to where exactly we are in a given moment, we're giving the relationship tremendous nourishment. And it doesn't mean that you need to have a partner, let's say, who is on exactly the same spiritual path as you. They do not have to tick the way you talk. I don't know where that came from, but it sounds so good. <laughs> talk, T-A-L-K. Uh, you can actually really annoy them if you try to bring a lot of uh, spiritual jargon into an argument. Well, I hear you're doing that, and your attachments are not going to get mine peaked, you know. And then, have you, have you actually served? <laughs> have you served the well-being of the relationship? Not really. Okay. Or maybe you have. I just it's usually it can get it can get really sticky, really messy. On the other hand. That awareness doesn't need to be spoken about. The awareness of your attachments, of the other person's unconsciousness, their attachments or whatever. If we don't let their clinging influence our own, which by the way is an absolute choice. You have to, you have to allow for someone to do that. You have to, you have to give someone permission to catch you like that. Is there anyone that could turn the AC off by knocking it up a couple of degrees there? It just makes it hard for the podcast to be heard. If you just, Sergio, raise the temperature, like, raise? yeah, raise it several degrees, and then it'll go off. 78 now. 
85. Push it up to 85. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean we're going to start having like. <laughs> Bikram meditation. This will thaw your attachments. It reminds me, if, for any of you who've ever done any any meditative work in the middle of summer, uh, I had an experience where I was at Tassajara. Uh, oh my God! And at you know, 108 degrees, we're sitting there in a yurt, and honestly, I thought I thought I'm pretty good with heat, and I thought, you know, this is hard on me. I wonder what's, I wonder if everybody's okay. You know, a very interesting way to go through a meditation. Um, anyway. Well, I'm just going to go on, even though that's uh, uh, blaring. Um, someone help me. Where was I? What the heck was I talking about? TikTok. TikTok, yes. <laughs> you don't need to to play the game, necessarily. You need to be able to play it, but you need to be able to play it for keeps. And that means you have to be able to carry carry awareness into every single dialogue you have, especially the ones you know that are going to tweak something. It's a tremendous gift, I think, when we can have a partner that points out where we cling. That doesn't mean you want to search for a partner <laughs> that's going to, you know, well, she's pretty good because she puts me in touch with all of my clinging. She has to on some level, or he has to on some level, also remind you of what is beyond name and form. They have to be able to remind you of truth. They have to be able to resonate with something huge and magical and majestic in you. At least it's helpful. So welcome the challenge of another. And this, by the way, can be an intimate, it can be a kid, it can be a neighbor. The relationships we have can be amazing teachers for us. Don't push them away. Because ultimately, when you push relationships away, you are pushing yourself away in the ultimate sense. There is one infinity. We are all aspects of that infinity. When you push away another, or you cling to another, you are merely diminishing the realization and its potential. So with that said, I wanted to kind of uh, lean into this roadblock idea that we have, whether it's with relationship or it's with something else. We tend to run into this, this space where we know that something, something's amiss, something's not quite right. In uh, Awaken This Life, I write, At some point on the path we find that we are in an unsettling place where our minds begin to realize that they don't have the capacity to take us any further. It's as if the small self has been busy extending a board over the side of the ship of consciousness, but at some critical point, the small self suddenly recognizes that it is the one who must walk the plank. 
This realization is devastating to the small self. And yet the reality of deep spiritual work is that awakening to what is forever beyond the small self can't be understood by the small self. Stillness helps us have the experience that points us directly toward this knowing with a capital K. This knowing is an infinite opening of wisdom rather than a contracted compartmentalization of intellect. It is not a conceptual understanding, but instead a readiness for the spiritual bloom that comes from a radically different relationship to our conventional circumstances. Unfortunately for many of us who are deeply interested in the intellectual aspects of spiritual work, knowing this flowering blossom has nothing to do with an intellectual or mental connection to anything. Rather, this precious bloom has to do with letting go of everything, even remotely related to the mind. You can't figure this one out. You can participate with a sharp intellect. But a sharp intellect that is honed, learned, profoundly uh, rich in its experience and so forth, oftentimes can get us going down the wrong path. We try to understand awakening. We try to get it. We try to uncover some stability. And there is positively none. So what's really required? Guts. Guts and little tenderness. A little recognition that we're all in this together. A little recognition that having a Sangha is really helpful. We get to support each other, even if we're not best friends. That's never a requirement. But we're all in this together. We start seeing ourselves and others. We start seeing the teaching, or Dharma, as I usually call it. The Dharma, ultimately, is a series of pointers towards what can never, ever be articulated or explained. Just like the Sangha can be this group that's in this room, it can be this community we call East Bay, Bay Area, it can be California, it can be the U.S., it can be the world, it can be the universe. That's all Sangha. It's group, it's relational. Just like your partner, just like your kids, your neighbor, those that are difficult and those that you can't help but fall in love with again and again and again. There's nothing outside of relationship. There is nothing outside of relationship. There's nothing outside of Sangha. There is Dharma available to whoever wants to sop it up. And there is never a shortage of teachers. Every single situation is a teacher in the informal sense. Guys like me, dime a dozen. We're all over the place. How do they connect? Do you connect? Does it speak to something? That's really important. Because on this path, as the plank gets dropped and the ego starts realizing, I gotta walk, walk this thing, oh no, 
the confusion, the fear, the anxiety that usually creeps up around all of that stuff can be pretty powerful. And it's always good to have, have somebody who knows what they're talking about. So I pretty much say this about every third meeting. You know, having this teacher, teaching, and sangha is really key. I was really especially lucky because I had several teachers um, in, in the formal sense. I used to, I used to um, uh, when I was a, a, a monk out at uh, Green Gulch Farm, I would meet with several teachers. There was one guy that I tended to kind of orbit around because he, he kept me just on my heels all the time. I had no idea what was going on, and, I, and that was really important because I was really good at figuring stuff out. And he wouldn't let me. It's very exciting, very frustrating, but I knew that that, that made most sense for, for a lot of the heavy lifting. But I also had other teachers that were really supportive in ways that he couldn't touch. This isn't for everybody. I, I always think it's good when you can dive very, very deep as opposed to cover square footage. Uh, but it's still, it still, it worked this way quite nicely. Um, anyway, what this does, when we're able to kind of meet with teachers and we're able to kind of, you know, resonate with a group and we can begin to hear and read teachings that start to make sense to some very, very deep place within us that we can't really put words to. We're getting primed. We're becoming accident prone for the accident of enlightenment. Okay? And this ultimately is what carries us out of that darkness that can show up whenever the plank goes down and we know we have to walk it. The work requires nothing less than everything. It does require everything. It, it requires everything you got. It requires your guts. It requires your tenderness. It requires the strength and the will to let go. The good news is that once that surrender begins to deepen itself, there is a bizarrely rich fullness to lives that can be lived from that space. So that's the encouragement. <laughs> Do the letting go. Do the letting go. And watch where it takes you. I promise you it will surprise you. I promise you it's not what you'll expect. to give some time for uh, for Q&A and see where that kind of takes us. Was there anything that was said tonight that sparked sparked something in you, Joanne? Yeah. Well, there wasn't anything you said tonight that sparked something. So maybe you should ask somebody else. Why don't I, do, you and I are talking anyway, so why not just go for it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I also asked this question because it sounds so stupid. I Stop that. I know. It's, <laughs> there's no such thing as a stupid question in a Dharma talk. All right. I don't know anything about Buddhism. Mm -hmm. so, question number one. 
Is there a concept of God in Buddhism? Is there a concept of God in yes. Probably the best question we've had in months. So, so thank you. Is there a concept of God? No, not really. Is there a concept of deities and gods? Yeah, plenty. Okay? So, where do we go from here? I don't know. And I don't really think, I don't really think it matters as long as our discussion of God as a concept doesn't become very small. And what I mean by small is that when we have, when we look at God as in any way separate from us, we are creating a division within infinity, which by definition is not divided. When we create a division, when I'm in here and God's out there and I pray to God, and God will grant me the serenity, or God will, when we see it as external, what we've done is we've denied half of God. We're getting a partial dose of what God really is. Similarly, there's a partial dose whenever we think, I am God, right? Both get in the way of a fullness, a whole, holistic realization of what God really is. God is just a name given to what is beyond name. Could I ask a question? Please, please, by all means. Did that answer your question, yes, though? Yes, it did. I okay. That, that which has no name. I don't use the word God. That which has no name is often how they refer to whatever you call it. Right? right, but if you pray to that which has no name, right. you're, busy, you're busy talking, let's say, to that which has no name which is not necessarily a bad thing, but if you're talking to that which has no name and it doesn't include that within you that has no name and no form, then it's going in precisely half of the direction that it needs to be going. Does this kind of make sense? I know I completely understand your concept. Mm -hmm. You cannot let yourself... You are part of it. You are part of it. You are part you, of it. You are spirit, just like everything else. Then my second question is, my understanding of Buddha, mm -hmm. which is I, I don't have a really understanding, is that he was not—he was not a prophet. Uh, the Buddha was awake. Right. I, and what all we know of the Buddha really uh, is that everything he or she said uh, was uh, related 400 years after his death. So, how accurate historically could any of it be? Again, who cares? It's not, it's not that Buddha was something that we need to look at as the penultimate. There again, we get caught by the Buddha is outside of us. When you're bowing to a Buddha, a Buddha statue, ultimately, you're really bowing to yourself and to every other being. It's what's sacred. It's the highest self within each of us that is awake. Therefore, Buddha is not separate from you. Similarly, God is not separate from you. Similarly, another person's pain, the oppressed people of the world, the powerful, the powerless, they're all aspects of you, part of this facet. It's your, excuse me, just a facet on the gem of all life. Well, like you said, it's all about relationships. It's all mm -hmm. about connection. It's all about relationships. 
because there's nothing that can be independent. God is not independent from you. You, you and everybody else are an expression of God. Yeah. I want to make sure I can get to yours because I know that cooked you right there. As, uh, as, I, was, as I was talking to you, I'm watching, watching, she's going. So I want, I, want to, I, I want to get back to the other questions, but, but help me with where you stuck, actually. With the, the whole aspect of God and... That God is... You said God is... God is separate from you. I said God is not separate from you. And when we pray... Right. I guess I don't know how to... If we're, if we're praying to God, yeah. are we praying to something that is actually separate from us? If we are, that's deeply egotistical. Right? Because it's me in here, God out there. As opposed to, this is all God. Which is why meditation resonates so much more in a, a, a wisdom tradition that isn't talking about God. It's talking about letting go of everything, including our concept of God, so that what happens? We see that it's all God. Nothing is absent of God. Does that help? It does. Bingo. <laughs> sure, sure. It's really good to wrestle with that. It's really good to wrestle with that because what this can really do is deepen your Christianity. Right. This can deepen your, your, your Muslim nature. This can deepen every aspect of every faith that you could imagine. So is meditation like prayer? Yeah, except instead of talking to God, it's listening for God. Okay. I guess that's a good way to say it. Sure. A mediocre way of saying it. Yeah, we begin listening. Just like we were talking about earlier, relationships are enhanced radically by listening, deep listening, right? right. So is faith. Yes. Whatever your faith is. Yeah? Yes. Thank you. Go for it. <laughs> Finally, yeah. I'm having trouble with some definitions, yeah. especially as I read your book. Um, one of them is, I think I understand small self, but I would appreciate the definition again. Yeah. And then I guess the contrary, which is what the big self. Sure. So let's start with small self. Small self is that in us which is contracted, which feels separate. Okay? Which feels separate. And so another way we could call, we could look at the small self as being the I sense. It's me. It's mine. Right? Okay? It's ego, which is just a Latin word for I. Because the guy who translated Freud didn't think that, that das ich or the I would sound good, so he gave it a Latin label. Mm. Kind of cool, isn't it? <laughs> das id means the it. <laughs> I kind of like the it. <laughs> but anyway, um, the mind, the small self. Okay. All things that are, that are divided within, all things that feel separate are what we call the small self. So there are a lot of names there that we could play with. Okay? The big self, on the other hand, is 
what is undivided, which simultaneously goes in and out when it prays. Okay? It's what opens. It's what doesn't cling. It's what doesn't grasp. It's, in other words, what previously was the small self. It's a small self that has let the universe bash its way in and out. So the big self is the awakened aspect of each of us that lives in ultimate life instead of something that is constrained by circumstantial, you know, living. If we live by circumstances where we're just uh, reactive to everything or we can give that another, we can put lipstick on it and call it proactive, okay, where we are, we are grasping and rejecting. If that's, that's all done within the realm of conventional circumstance, that's all small self stuff, okay? And it's not that it's bad. It's just that if we live totally from that small self space, we don't get a chance to let big self in to infuse that and allow for grace and ease to populate every single one of those experiences. So then, therefore, would grief over loss be the process of moving from small self to big self? You're going to grieve going from small self to big self. Because it means that all the furniture has to, all the hangs on the wall have to be rehung. Everything shifts. Okay, sometimes it's gradual, sometimes it's very, very sudden. But that rehanging and re, you know, reconfiguration of who and what we always thought we were always involves grief. We went through that a lot as teenagers, where we had to reconfigure who we thought we were. It was all about identity, except the identity that most of us hold after the age of 18 is something that has become deeply entrenched, much more so than, say, a 14-year-old who flies off the handle because dad has taken away the keys, <laughs> you know? Well, what am I without your car? Well, you'll find out. Oh, I hate you, <laughs> you know? We go through that now, but just the, the stakes are a little different and indeed much higher for the most part. What would you be without those things you identify with? Identity becomes something that we find to be increasingly trivial. It doesn't mean we don't have one. It means the identity that we have now is rooted in the truth beyond name and form as opposed to what we think looks really good, right? Instead of it being egoic or small self, it becomes big self. <laughs> Got that? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Yes. When you were talking about anger in the beginning, mm -hmm. you were saying how um, anger is fear of loss and how we are reluctant to show fear, but it's easy for us to show anger. That's quick and stuff. That is with you, with you, with you. And then you kind of played this card that said um, how we actually have nothing to lose, and then you went on with your fear. And, and I wanted to say, wait a minute, back up a minute. What what exactly are do you mean by that? Do you mean because we don't really have ownership of anything, we have nothing to lose? Or what did you? Is there something else I should know about? That's actually kind of a really cool way to say it. We don't have ownership of anything. There's nothing we can hang on to. Nothing stays. Nothing lasts. Right? And ownership is about making something last. Right? 
The minute this ring right here on my finger becomes ownership, the marriage is compromised radically, isn't it? Now, does that mean I'm, I'm not going to buy a car or a house? Or no, of course I'm going to do that. There is small, small cell value in the world. The small self actually gets us through stuff we need to get through. But what's the big self, does the big self have any say or any, does it, does it help create any space around what the small self must do in its day-to-day, -day? right? From the big self perspective, there's nothing that can be lost because it's always already here. From the small self perspective, it's always about competing for gain and avoiding stuff that could be disastrous. And living in that small self space is freaking exhausting. Most of us do it all the time. And so what we're doing here is kind of proposing another way that is nothing new. There have been people doing what we're doing right here in this room for thousands of years. Thousands of years. There's no, I have said nothing new. Ever. Except I probably joke around too much. <laughs> he doesn't seem spiritual. <laughs> He's kind of a jackass. <laughs> but I'm coming back. <laughs> Does that help? Yeah, I think my head hurts, and I think that's a good thing. <laughs> good, good. So does mine. Thank you. You bet, you bet. Anyone else? Mike. Great name, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> I, I feel a connection. <laughs> good. Um, a much more mundane question. I've been wondering about the whole eyes open versus eyes closed thing in meditation. Maybe you could speak about that. Yeah, uh, I had a teacher who was kind of, uh, kind of intense about that. And his point was, do not deny any sense. Hmm. Right? So in other words, stillness, if it can't occur with your eyes open, it's partial. So he was really, you know, and he was adamant about it. Eyes relaxed, partially closed, staring roughly a yard out in front of you. And uh, so I did that for, for years and years and years. And then um, uh, I shared this, I think, recently. Uh, I just kind of started closing my eyes every once in a while. I found it to be really quite nice. There's a, a, a qualitative difference in the experience. Okay. Um, I think it might have saved me a little time if in the beginning I had practiced with my eyes closed because I probably would have gotten better at stillness faster, right? Uh, and then moving to eyes open. Now, to get mundane about it, it doesn't matter. Stillness is stillness. Stillness, whether you're sitting in a chair or you're folded up in lotus, it's stillness, you know? Whether your posture is hunched over, or you're, you know, you want to just absolutely in like you know perfect form. I just don't see that it matters, because I've seen people who have horrible technique do just fine, just fine, um, and that pretty much 
throws uh, my tradition of Zen on its ear. Because the first teaching is to sit up straight, watch your breath. But my knees hurt. I don't care. Sit up straight, watch your breath. But there's pain. Watch the pain. Ugh, you know. <laughs> that wasn't me. But uh, it was excruciating. It's excruciating. When I, first, when I first started, I was in, you know, I'm trying to sit zazen. Like, my hips had no flexibility to them at all. And so I was like this, and I literally had this, this person go, now you want this one down here, and this, ah! you know, type of thing. It was incredibly uncomfortable and rude. Um, and I told her I don't like being touched. Uh, and she didn't know how to, I was kidding, and she had no idea how to take that. Just... <laughs> but but uh, it was, uh, um, I mean, kidding aside, I, th I think that that the stillness that we experience on Monday nights, you know, uh, you got to be able to carry that into your day. And I'm assuming your eyes are open most of the time, you know. So when you're cooking a meal, when you're feeling frustrated with something at work, when you are driving your car, when you are listening to the radio, can you be utterly and totally aware of what's going on? You know? Can you not get caught by the small self tendency to run in one direction or another? Can you just be? That's meditation. And when we sit still and do it, we allow it to really, really heat up, really focus, because we have no responsibility. Someone's going to take care of the bell. Someone's going to... The, the room will be cared for, you know. Uh, so what we do is we try to use our formal sittings as a time to really, really turn the heat up. Thanks. You're very welcome. Yeah, Cindy. I have a question. Mm -hmm. I think that what bothers me about all of this is that... Wait, hang on, is this a question or a statement? No, it's going to be a question. But first a statement? Yeah. Okay. So we talked about being aware mm -hmm. and watching our thoughts and not uh, grasping or resisting. When you're a witness to something that's ugly, and it's hard to watch. It's hard to let it go on. Say, for example, in your class, somebody comes to school, and obviously this person is abused. Mm -hmm. So we're just not going to do anything. No. I never, go there. I never once said that. Ego loves playing this out, though. Because what ego does is ego tra transforms awareness into non-action. Right? Ego yes. listens to this and says, you're articulating non-action in the face of horror? That's, it's, I mean, I'm... I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, but, but that's essentially what every one of our egos does that dance. And so here's what I'm going to encourage. Watch the tendency for ego to make those statements because it's desperately trying to eradicate and get rid of any chance at seeing beyond itself. It's a good sign, especially if it starts heating up because it means you're getting close. Okay. If somebody comes into my classroom is clearly abused, or if someone shows up that is clearly abusive, 
to themselves or to other? Does that mean I'm not going to do anything? Of course not. I'm going to act with utter and total love. And that maybe I love them enough to finally call them out on what they're doing. Is that inaction? No. 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 Inaction? I'm carrying the space that comes from watching into the activity of doing. There's no clinging there. There's love. There's compassion. There's tenderness. Otherwise, we become spiritual couch potatoes, which are wastes of oxygen. It's not awakening to just bliss out. It is also not awakening to go to war in the name of God. Both are the same disease. To act with love, but you're trying to, you know, in this case, trying to prevent a real train wreck. No, I'm not. Train wrecks need to happen. A child being abused. Uh, that, okay, so if I'm, if, I'm in a, if I'm in a situation, let's take the child abuse situ scenario. If there's a child that is clearly getting abused, I'm going to report that like that. You know why? Because the parent needs to awaken and the kid needs to heal. And in the healing, there's awakening for both. So our job is not to make people feel good. Our job is to make people awake, to be more conscious. And that goes for ourselves first. So if we look, if, if we look at our position on this planet as one that stems from or is fueled by resistance, mm -hmm. what we're doing is living a very small aspect of what we could be. If on the other hand, we are resisting from a place of spacious openness, then what we're doing is we're offering the world an appropriate response, a non-egoic response, a response that doesn't cling and does not reject. It just responds. Christ said, look at the lilies, see them grow. They neither toil nor spin. They just are lilies. And the minute we can meet the world as lilies, no matter how ugly, is the minute we've taken our judgmental small mind out of the picture. And at that point only is there room for love. There's no room for love if we're judging. Yeah? I love you. <laughs>